Well, my dears, this has been such a beautiful season of podcast conversations. And oh my goodness, do I have a treat for you for our last episode of season eight. But don't worry, we will be back in the fall. And while our team is taking a little break in the summer from new episodes, we thought you might still need maybe something sustaining during these summer months. So many of us are spread too thin and frankly, just kind of exhausted by all we have to continue to bear up. We need rest, but we might not know where to find it. So this summer, I'm going to be sending out a blessing every Wednesday to your inbox, if that's your kind of thing. It's a few blessy words that might offer you space to just speak honestly about how beautiful and terrible and fun and tiring our regular days can be. Maybe we might find just a minute to be people together in our hopes for a summer that doesn't stress us out more and in the real days that ask a little too much from us anyway. Life is hard, but we don't have to do it alone. So if you want to do this together, then sign up free at katebowler.com newsletter. And I'll just send you some blessy kinds of stuff. Well, friends, okay, so I have a really special episode for you today, and I've been so excited about sharing it with you. I had the privilege, the ridiculous privilege, of getting to go to London for a real in-person sitting across the table taping of today's conversation. I got to go to a palace, an actual palace, with none other than the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby. He oversees all of Anglicanism, which, if you're not familiar with Anglicanism, it's a massive denomination that spans the globe. Justin has been the Archbishop since 2013, and I felt so lucky to get to do this, but also unbelievably nervous. Oh my gosh, he is kind and hilarious, and he was so generous with his time, and the way he thought really carefully about his own experience of grief and what is bringing him hope. Also, at one point, he pretends to be a prosperity church preacher. So yeah, day made. I think you're going to love my conversation with the most reverend and right honorable Justin Welby, Archbishop of Canterbury. And honestly, that's only part of his full title. Oh, and if you come find me on Instagram or Facebook or whatever, you can see the pictures of where I absolutely had no idea if I was allowed to hug him. So instead, I suddenly just decided to do it, but really slowly. It's so awkward. You're going to love it. All right, here we go. Today's Wonderful and Strange. I'm in Lambeth Palace, and uh, I've got this adorable little teacup here, and I'm going to meet the Archbishop. And it's like a beautiful day, uncharacteristically sunny. I don't know what English people are complaining about. feels... Like they need a new marketing department because it is beautiful here. Okay. Hello. Yes. Amazing. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for having me. We we set it up here if that's all right. Yeah. So I'm really grateful for this. Time. It's a pleasure. Thanks. You have a, a wonderful job and calling. Um, and I am really enjoying getting to know your people and your digs. 
I wondered if we could start with the with the young with the young Justin and what your young life was like. What was it like growing up? It was pretty confused. Um, my parents divorced before I can remember, separated immediately after getting married pretty well. And um, so I don't remember them being together. And at the time, they both were drinking very heavily through to when I was 12, when my mother uh, spent three months, perhaps longer, in a state hospital, mental hospital, and um, stopped drinking. And that was uh, just over 50 years ago. And my father kept on drinking and using drugs and all kinds of things. So it really was a pretty dysfunctional, unhappy, sort of messy childhood. Yeah. Yeah. You had a, a powerful spiritual turning point in college. I, I wondered what your faith had been like before that and, and what changed. Before that, it, I certainly wasn't an atheist or an agnostic for that matter. Um, I think it was the kind of faith that meant it wasn't worth the trouble not believing because believing didn't make any difference. Um, really. Yeah. So I sort of respected the clergy and we had compulsory chapel at schools, boarding schools from when I was eight to 18. And um, we had compulsory chapel there twice a day, every day, seven days a week. And you, in morning prayer, typically you caught up with the last bits of learning whatever you hadn't learned behind the hymn book during the service. And on Sunday you turned up at chapel and once you were confirmed you turned up a bit earlier which means you got out earlier so it was quite a good thing to get confirmed. <laughs> um, and then you, that was about it. In the holidays we didn't go to church except at Christmas and then that stopped uh, once I was about seven or eight I think. So it was part of life's little duties but uh, not worth rebelling against. It didn't have en enough cutting edge to, to be worth <laughs> saying no to. Yeah. Um, so after I left school, I went to, um, between leaving school and going to university to Cambridge, I had about nine months and I spent about seven of them um, working in Kenya, about 70 miles north of Nairobi in a, what's called a Harambe school. And Harambe is a word that means self-help. So it's self-help school supported by the local community. So very basic really 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 basic um, no electricity no running water there I met for the first time Christians for whom God was a reality and not a concept 
So in terms I'd use nowadays, I'd say where God was who you followed rather than God was what you believed in. And that's a hugely different way of looking at it. And uh, I was very struck by that. And my first year at university, I thought that following God, who was personal, would really ruin my life. And nobody liked the God Squad anyway. <laughs> so I didn't pay much attention. I went to chapel once or twice. In my second year, there was a moment where it all sort of fell into place, really, and someone explained to me about who Jesus is and what he did on the cross and the resurrection, and, and uh, in a sort of classic way, I prayed a prayer of commitment and found that the question I should have been ans asking myself was, uh, who, not what. And so the who became a reality, and that was where it all changed, really. I don't have a strong conversionary before and after, because I, I remember thinking, what a wonderful story to live inside. Isn't that interesting? I remember thinking that as, as when I was very young, but didn't, it just was a fairy story. Mm. So your parents, were they practicing Christians? They became Christians kind of later in life, which I was pretty grateful for because I felt like I got to skip a lot of the precious kitschiness of a subculture that I, I think I... Christian subculture. Yeah. I mean, we did have a... Precious number, kitschiness. You know, there's only quite so many records you can listen to that, where the chorus is... Don't lie or... <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I've we never heard one at all. Yeah. Lying never, makes I <laughs> yeah. yeah, it Yes. It was that. nice to feel like they... Um, I mean, I think both my parents' religious experiences helped inform a little something of... I mean, my dad read... It's very highbrow. He read Augustine in college and thought, all right. And that was it for him. And then my mom was handed one of those terrible bless them for spiritual laws tracts where she opened a pamphlet and said um you are a sinner and she's like i, I guess i suppose <laughs> and, really? yeah it worked and people are always hoping those pamphlets work and my mom just picked one up in a college you know rec center <laughs> and thought well, i suppose i am fallen short of the glory of god <laughs> and, and then that was it for her but something about the uh the emotional that resonance is <laughs> mesmerizing no, I, I wish there were a lot more. Gosh, that would make my life easier. We just go around. We just use our clergy to go around and spreading pamphlets, spreading pamphlets on you know pub bars and uh, nightclub disco floors and you know whatever. I mean, it would just save so much time. It really would. The feeling. I mean, I think people do sometimes stumble into some kind of lightning bolt experience. Oh yes, they do. But I. Uh, I've, I, but you drifted in. I, I, I felt uh, I grew up mostly it was you know Mennonites, the cheese eaters of the prairies, and so I was mostly around that type and loved. Yes, our chief of staff is very influenced by Mennonites, but he's sort of Northern Irish, um, 
I wouldn't describe him as cheese eater of the prairies. No, <laughs> definitely not. I think what I liked about the Mennonites early on was I learned a lot about faithfulness, like the, the kind of community yes. that's like, oh, I'll build your coffin for you. That's a real, that's a real kind of person. I'll bring the casserole and... I'll, I'll build your coffin. I'll build, oh, yeah, they, they will. And it's, uh, it's kind of an intense and um, many small acts that will add up to a life of being carried is... And a real community. I, I learned about the church growing up from Mennonites, but I didn't know quite enough about a God I couldn't live without until I was diagnosed very suddenly with cancer and I thought that was my last year. And then the... Um, How long ago was that? That was six years ago. So for a last year, that's lasted a bit. Yeah, it's been sort of a... I wasn't supposed to live um, beyond that first year and then I just kept living. <laughs> so, and don't answer if you don't want to, but what kind of cancer? It was colon cancer and there was no cancer in my family so I didn't have any expectation that I would sort of That's be that so story cool. that they tell at a party. <laughs> oh did you hear about? It's terrible. <laughs> Wait that story's about me. <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah that was the that to me was the most uh, powerful experience of being carried not just by a community and I had a great community because I was um, at a divinity school where everybody flagrantly abused clergy visiting hours protocols and just constantly. I had like 12 personal clergy at any time telling the hospital staff, oh no, no, I'm her, I'm her personal pastor, <laughs> just <laughs> popping a collar on and getting on in there. And I, uh, so I, I had a, I felt carried by the love of others, but I felt blown away. It's really interesting. So there was, for you, it was both the love of others, but there was also the love of God. Yeah, an undeniable, ridiculous kind of, why am I not more upset about this? Yes, that, you see, when our, um, our eldest daughter died in a car crash, when she was seven months old, so she'd now be, um, 40 this autumn, so it's a very long time ago, 39 years ago, more or less. At that point, I think, I mean, it, we were absolutely full of grief, paralysed with grief, no, not paralysed, the wrong word. We were grief-stricken, and it was the most enormously painful time. But we were very definitely carried by the love of God. So what you say makes a lot of sense. When a year later our son had had neurosurgery, which was when he was very, very tiny, two or three months, there was a sense of the complete absence of God. And in that case, for me anyway, yeah. and in that time it was the support of the community so it's fascinating to me to hear you you had both at the same time as yeah. it were and um and did that continue has that continued that sense of the presence and love of god oh no it went away I was, <laughs> when did it go away 
uh, I was terrified that it would, and so I went around, I honestly wandered the halls of the Divinity School having theological problems, asking sort of Aquinas scholars, have you heard about this? <laughs> there's a, there's a, some kind of sweetness there. I feel like I know that I am propelled toward the concrete, and yet I feel lifted and weirdly bubble-wrapped, and this is gonna go away. <laughs> right? <laughs> Please tell me it's not going to go away. And they're like, oh yeah, it's definitely, <laughs> it's definitely going to go. It lasted about three to six months. And it got me through the, um, I think the horror of it, hmm. but, uh, but not the enduringness of it. That I felt like I would need a different kind of, um, I, I don't know. Uh, I would need to understand that uh, that some pain endures, and that I, that I would need different maybe spiritual muscles for that. It's really interesting that it is a very I like that phrase different spiritual muscles. I remember uh, reading through not that long ago uh, stuff about Dark Nights of the Soul and all that. And thinking, no, that's not it. Mm -hmm. Don't quite fit that one. But John Stott used to talk about the go-go principle. I don't know this. Tell me. It's very simple. Uh, it stands for go on, going on. And I think, and you, you think, oh, well, that's sort of public school Christianity you know, private school Christianity in, in, in American terms. You know, sort of stiff upper lip, winning the Battle of Waterloo on the playing fields of Eton stuff, you know. But it's not, it, it seems to me that some of that that we sometimes have to develop the muscles for is just saying, well, it's another morning, so I'm going to go through today yeah. and just see what happens. Some days, you get to the end of the day and you just can't imagine how you got through it. And some days you think, well, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. And then there are the moments of, of sort of relief and faith and the presence of God. I suppose if I'm being really honest, particularly since, an experience, since recent years an experience of depression, I am now you know, C.S. Lewis read a book, Surprised by Joy. Yeah. I think if I was, there have been times when, might even be one, where I might write a book called Suspicious of Joy. <laughs> totally, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, you know, you just sort of think, I'm feeling well and happy, okay. What did I eat this morning? <laughs> have I been, did I take more drugs than I should have done? You know, yeah. <laughs> what's wrong? <laughs> um, Rowan Williams, my fabulous, fabulous predecessor, who is a great, one of the world's great philosophers and theologians. He, um, when I was a new bishop 10 years ago, and I was newly Bishop of Durham, and there was a big kerfuffle going on, and 
uh, in to do with various bits of property in Durham and who owned them and who was selling them and who was buying them. It's too complicated to explain. But anyway, they, it sort of got sorted out. So we, Rowan organised a dinner for everyone to sort of all be together and really formal dinner in, in this place, in Lambeth Palace. And I was a very new bishop. So I came down from Durham in the train and I came along here and I was really frightened. I was going to meet the Archbishop of Canterbury. <laughs> Terrifying. And in the course of the journey and coming here, the whole solution to the problem fell apart. So I had to come and say to Rowan, you know, we're having a dinner to celebrate solving this problem it's not solved and typically so what's wrong and I was thinking of a way to try and explain it and I said about one of the people involved uh, Rowan I said uh, Archbishop have you ever read Winnie the Pooh and he said I have two children, of course I've read Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> Rather grumpily, I thought. So I said, well, so-and-so is Tigger. And he's just bounced off. <laughs> ah, he said, there is almost no human situation that cannot be explained with the hermeneutics of Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and I'm Eeyore. <laughs> so uh, I am genuinely Eeyore. So, you know, if you know you're Winnie the Pooh, I do. one of the stories where um, he's given a balloon and he's happiest when it's burst because nothing more can happen. <laughs> so I don't know if that makes, I mean, you know, yes. suspicious of yes. joy. But then, says Pooh, it's so much better with two. Oh my goodness, you are, you've got a good memory. I'd forgotten that bit. But then I'm ill. <laughs> the, but so I think, has has the carrying come back? Has the sense? I, weirdly, uh, the theology of Winnie the Pooh is exactly the next. The carrying kind of went on. Is um, at least with me, there was a there is a certain. Um, there's a certain narcissism and fear, right? Where the oh gosh, yes. that little asterisk that says it will always be this bad. I was on um, a loop where every week the same terrible thing would happen. Every Wednesday, it was chemo all day, and then for the rest of the week, it was feeling like death on wheels. Yes, chemo pills, and then I had two days off, and I had a 18-month-old son, and so I spent the whole time toggling very abruptly between I will be an indestructible mom and there is an encroachment of death and I am absolutely I'm, this is a clean one <laughs> does it all matter to me <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the worry the worry and pain for me is always will it always be this way and then what could possibly make any of this all right if I if if I can't bear up the weight of my life if I can't be the one that bears up the weight of my life. And what was the answer? Um, it, it was, uh, we had a, 
I met a, a lovely person. She said, uh, she called it the, the fellowship of the afflicted. That, that the, the knowledge of the precarity of the world can be a terrible gift. That's exactly right. That's beautiful. Um, in the various places, one of the things we discover very frequently is other people who, whose children have died as children. When it happens to you, you think you're the only people in the world. And then you realize actually, even in the global north, in the rich world, it's happening the whole time. It's everywhere. But one of the things it does, one of the many things in which it changed us was that sense of the precariousness of life. And you just don't take things for granted in yeah. the same way. And it can be the breaking, and in the breaking, the knowledge you get right at first where, you know, the world is inside out and undone, and yeah. you know it, and why didn't you know it before? And you know you can't live. I, my friend, uh, Luke Bretherton, he oh, gave yes. me a lovely, he said, oh, it's that kind of bright clarity. He called it tragic time. I th and he said, yeah. I thought that was a lovely... That's a very Luke way of putting <laughs> it. That, uh, he loves naming to kinds of time, and I love thinking about kinds of time. And it did give it the feeling that I might not live like this in this crisis forever, but there is a way of seeing that, that might make me more useful. It might make me a little more compassionate, a little more prone towards service, maybe. If I'm I think it does. Well, certainly for us, yeah, absolutely. It, and. And that was that was one of one of the impacts on us, and also more honest. Yes. Usually. Less likely to small talk beyond the two-minute mark for me. <laughs> <laughs> I might give you get two minutes, and yes. then we're getting into it. <laughs> and then we'll get into it. I yes yes I don't know. Um, yeah, that's probably an element of that. But probably I yeah. Part of the knack of archbishoping is to just witter on for quite a long time <laughs> while you're working out what you want to say. Archbishops talk while they're thinking about what they need to say. It's a way of filling space. I mean, you know, if necessary, I'll talk about that mantelpiece for quite a long time. I would time. be very interested to hear about it. I know nothing about it, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't stop me lying consistently for several minutes. I mean, that mantelpiece, looking at it, I would guess it's, um, I, it's Chinese rather than Italian marble. You can tell by the way the veins run on it. I can see it now. Thank you. And that would mean it's more likely to be 18th and 17th century. Oh, you forget I am schooled in the ways of academia. Yeah, in which, in which completely clean, blagging. Yeah, <laughs> just clearing their throat takes 20 minutes. Yeah, absolutely. This is true. <laughs> did kind of wonder if this sort of knowledge you have when the world is undone is 
if that clarity is something that then sort of pops up or becomes more useful than in times of crisis. Like during the pandemic, I know you spent a lot of time praying for people, seeing people in their most vulnerable. I wondered if that um, your membership and the fellowship of the afflicted sort of gave you a citizenship with them, maybe. I think it does to some degree. I think not necessarily. I think lots of things have that impact. Um, just for the sake of clarity, you said that I spent a lot of time during um, the pandemic, pandemic praying, praying for, for people. people. You did, I yes, believe. but I do quite often pray for people, I even mean, I've heard in, you're into in that times <laughs> other ah! than the pandemic. I just <laughs> thought it's best to have that on the record. Yeah. Uh, Archbishop only prays during pandemics and they only it's come... It's weird. In... It needs a real pickle of a problem to <laughs> yeah. get this man praying. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's the last time was 100 years ago during the Spanish flu epidemic. Um, but hey, um, no, it, it, it was. But I think there are other things. For me, one of the ways that I've experienced God working is through bringing, bringing me into contact with loads of different spiritual traditions and approaches to life. For instance, Catholic Social Teaching, which has had a huge impact on my thinking about the world and justice and truth and peace and war and that kind of thing. Amongst Catholic friends coming, finding the extraordinary gift of silent prayer in front of the sacrament. Mm -hmm. And that, don't worry, these two thoughts are connected. It may I'm just take me quite a long time to get there. That, um, <laughs> and <laughs> and I'll, have forgotten. It's going somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have forgotten where I started by the time I get to the end. But for me, one of the extraordinary moments when praying silently with us in front of the sacrament with the other people in the community here in the chapel after evening prayer just for half an hour of silence is I'm always struck by the intense fragility of the host mm. of the consecrated bread which and that links into this sense of the precariousness of life, that Jesus, both in his incarnate life and in his, and in however you understand the real presence, but without getting into that, down that rabbit hole, but in his presence with us yeah. through the host is, utterly fragile and yet infinitely powerful and so when you go into the hospital and you're kneeling or standing next to the bed of someone who's right at the end of their life and is unconscious and dying and in one particular case not you know from a, a Muslim family not a Christian family you don't start thinking about what 
this is going to sound very bad, but I'll say it anyway. You don't think about what the right thing to do is. You think about being alongside someone where everything is not right. And praying because everything's not right. And to put it at its most basic, it can't do any harm and it might do some good. It's not very profound, but it's a lot better than walking away. Yeah. And so you spend time with them. I think that speaks too to one of people's biggest fears when they encounter an unsolvable tragedy is, well, I'd, I wouldn't want to do the wrong thing. I wouldn't want to. And sometimes that barrier um, then continues to stand between us. So I like the, uh, I'm willing to be a bit embarrassed. I'm willing to be a bit embarrassed. And then at the other extreme, and this is something I've talked about, but um, traveling in South Sudan and being at the side of a mass grave in a town where there were 3,000 unburied bodies and the opposing forces in the Civil War had swept through that town four times in a month and uh, in the most horrendous way with torture and rape and uh, I'm just extraordinary and with the body bags with the clergy in them at my feet you know, we were in the grounds of the cathedral and a group standing around and they said will you pray for the grave and before we fill it in it was a grave for 60 people, 80 people, something like that. And that is a sort of depth of tragedy that we're now seeing in Ukraine, a place like Mariupol, but makes almost no sense to most of us um, who haven't lived through wars, which outside, you know, the very elderly and people in various parts of the world, uh, in Europe. Most Europeans have no concept of that. And you, you look at that and again, the Archbishop of what was then Sudan and South Sudan says, will you pray for this grave? And you thought, uh, not sure how to do this. Yeah. Not taught at seminary. Um, you know, um, and the best thing is you just start praying and express what's in your heart and draw on the Psalms and the absolute outrage that this should be done by anyone to anyone and the horror of the people there for whom these were those they knew and loved and the darkness that seemed on a bright sunny day to in South Sudan to sweep up from the fringes towards us. To face that seems to me is with protest and lament which I think in most of our Western liturgical traditions, Anglicanism in the West, we have completely forgotten about. We don't know how to do lament. We don't know 
how liturgically to call out our intense anger at injustice and wrong, or even at God. We don't have a service that says, may those who did this have their children's heads smashed against rocks, because we think it's a bit not quite the done thing to pray that. But we might feel it inside. We might hate as viscerally as that, but we don't say it. And I think one of, the, one of the most important things about suffering is to enable us to be transparent and honest with God and say exactly what we think, because he knows anyways, there's not much point in it. <laughs> we can't do a... Yeah, yeah, I, I see. Yeah, there's, no <laughs> point in being, there's no point in being polite with God. It doesn't fool him. Yeah. American culture has a solution for that. Oh, yes. It's, uh, so I, in my before life, um, I, my historical expertise was in the history of the prosperity gospel. Oh, yes, I think I knew that, yeah. So the solution then is, of course, um, to rechannel our spiritual thoughts toward positive outcomes. So the solution then is not honesty. It's, in fact, uh, prescriptive positivity. And it feels... So disnified, well, it, disnified religion. It feels like faithfulness because you know at the, at the edges of your mind that yeah. the horrors of the world are, are, are sort of percolating there, and it feels like bravery to say, um, no weapon against me shall prosper, I am more than a conqueror. It feels like kind of spiritually bucking up. Honesty then, though, I mean, the first casualty is the kind of honesty you're describing. And that needn't deny God. Psalm 44, well be translation. You know, um, you've sold your people for a pittance. That is the NRSV, I think. Um, in other words, God, you're an absolute rubbish businessman. You just don't get how to buy and sell things. You've sold us out, but you didn't even make a buck on it. Yeah. That is just pathetic. And then you go on a few verses and, you know, are you asleep? Wake up. That is real prayer. Um, Psalm 56, verse 8, it's the one after, in our deepest grief, that, that Caroline came back to, my wife. You store up our tears in a bottle. Nothing is lost. Nothing's forgotten. Nothing is wasted. I think for people who go through really bad times, Knowing that God doesn't waste it, doesn't lose it, loves us, understand, knows what we're feeling. It's very interesting in exile. The exiles don't, as far as I can remember, and you'll probably correct me, but as far as I can remember, the exiles when they're confessing their sin, they don't confess that they were angry with God. They confess they were unfaithful with God. Oh. 
constantly. Yeah, we didn't do this, we didn't do that, we didn't, we followed the Baals, we sacrificed our children to Moloch and all the rest of it. But I can't offhand, or even on hand, think of places where they said, we got really cross with you because we felt you'd let us down. And yet that's very much part of what we expect nowadays. That's right. Yeah. That that kind of rage doesn't need confession. It does not sound very polite, the way you're describing it. No, it's not very polite. Plenty of my colleagues would tell you I'm not always very polite. (laughs) I think that was maybe my best, hardest thought. Um, Harvest thought. Harvest thought would be wonderful, but hardest thought. Harvest thought would be a real prosperity gospel theology. Just seeds of faith. Seeds of faith become fields of corn. (laughs) And out of those fields of corn, I want you to take a tithe and just put it in the basket as you leave the church. I think you do really well. Yes. And now we're going to sing. <laughs> There's always a lot of singing. That was the first sermon. Then it goes to song. Um, I think the thing that preserved my faith most for that first year of being very sick was being unbelievably angry at things that felt um, like they were like God's hype man, just right there trying to explain away the oh, tragedy. Yeah. And, uh, and the, the most precious moments were the ones in which someone said... Um, um, you know, this is un- this is unbearable. This is uh, there will be, and even even um, there is no there is there is no heaven that that solves the problem of pain that that reaches into the present. Isn't it interesting? You can't. Again, I'm being. I will get into all kinds of trouble and get a load of letters for this. But um, <laughs> it seems to me that the pastoral answers to suffering tend to be theologically inadequate. And the theological answers tend to be pastorally inadequate. Yes. And yet that seems to be something to do with the shape of the cross and the shape of Jesus' experience. That nobody tries to, well, the Pharisees do, you know, if he was the son of God, come down sort of stuff, is a sort of theological approach to it. But all the women do, is stand at the foot of the cross. Yeah. And presumably weep. And that's the right thing to do. Yeah. That's beautiful. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Those were always all the people I liked best. I liked the, uh, I liked the ugly tears. (laughs) I liked the, especially from my very proper friends. It was, uh, you, you have know, proper friends. I, well, you know, it's all Very smoking proper. jackets and port at the Divinity really? School. Yeah, you know, they love a good, just the faint sounds of Masterpiece Theatre in the background. We have a lot of people who are caregiving in some way. They're yeah. children or um, aging parents, or they're in a profession that's very 
emotionally strenuous. I wondered what words of encouragement you might be able to offer them now, especially when it feels, I mean, the, the truth of it is that the, also the world is on fire. And sometimes these layers kind of compound in a way that makes it feel impossible then to do the small acts of love. Probably makes them think they can't do the small acts of love. There was a friend of mine who died um, almost two years ago called Desiri Mukanawa. Uh, and I first met him in 2005 in Geneva where he, he's from Eastern Congo and he was doing a course on development studies. And I bumped into him at breakfast. We were in the same building and we just started chatting. And I went to see him in Goma where he was a parish priest and went to see him a couple of times, two or three times, and then he became a bishop and we kept in touch. I went to see him and during the Ebola crisis was the last time. And I remember on one of the occasions in his area, we went to a refugee camp and for various reasons, food wasn't getting through to it. I think there were, I mean, there's, the last figure I knew, there were 137 militias in the area and, you know, so, and they're all fighting, different people, and the UN, and the Congolese army, and uh, attacking the refugee, at the refugee camps and attacking the Ebola clinics. Anyway, we went to this refugee camp and it was built, it's a very volcanic area, it was built mainly on volcanic rock. And the opening place we went to was a huge tent run by an amazing medical charity. And it had children all around it, very young children, with severe disabilities, who, as the refugees had fled, they'd been forced to leave their disabled children behind. And these were the ones that had been rescued. And I remember just sitting with um, a little, little boy, a few months, with his sister who was about three who was caring for him. And the place, he was very severely disabled. Um, and the tent was full of these children dying. And the doctors were doing everything they could. There were very few doctors, one or something. And then we went round the camp and at the other extreme end was a woman who had lost touch with her family as they fled, a very elderly woman, stone blind. And she just, I sat with her and held her hand and she didn't know who I was. I couldn't speak to her because of language, but we just sat and held hands and she was just crying for help. And then we went round and went round and at the end of it, it was just one camp, there wasn't big, 12,000 people. And we, at the end of it, as we were going back to Intergoma, I said to Desiree, what do you do? How do you cope with this? How do you deal with the weight of this? Well, he said, I do what I can with the resources God gives me, and the rest I leave to, to him to God. He died of COVID after a trip. He was a very good friend. 
and he died of COVID after a trip up north. He's in his 40s at the time, so young man. And his wife was equally, is equally extraordinary, just which reminds me, I was getting in touch with her, but again, but they are extraordinary, extraordinary, extraordinary people. And I would say to people in the kind of professions you're talking about, it actually doesn't matter what percentage of the problem you've dealt with. Your job is not to solve the problem in most cases. Your job is to do what you can with the resources God has given you. And if that's very, very little indeed, it's very little indeed. Yeah. I have to keep telling myself this because I'm not very good at that. I, I do guilt in really large scale <laughs> and feelings of failure or imposter syndrome in huge scale. But it's the truth. And I would, and whether it's in time, energy, emotional energy, money, don't beat yourself up. You do what you can. And this is where the Psalms of lament and protest come in again, because all you can do when you run out of resources is lament and protest. You can't solve the problem. We've got this huge war, terrible war in Ukraine. Lots of people are saying to religious leaders, especially Pope Francis, but when they get really desperate, they say it to me, you know, you ought to be mediating. Well, it would be lovely to have the opportunity, but if that's not possible, it's not possible. And as long as we know, each of us knows that we've done what we can with the resources that God has given us, used in the sensible way the New Testament talks about. So we aren't leaving our children to starve while we do something, or we aren't neglecting our aged parents in order to help at the food bank, you know, which is the sort of classic thing. I would say you just turn to God and say, I've done what I can, the rest is in your hands. And by the way, I'm really, deep within me, I'm sad that you didn't give me more resource to deal with this, because I'd love to do more. Yeah. yeah. And you know, I feel just desperate about this. Yeah. But, so be honest, yeah. but Desiree's thing, do what you can, leave the rest to God. I think. I mean, I'm, I'm the most useless one at applying this, but hey, it's good advice. The image in my mind when you're describing this is not working backwards from the problem down to my resources, but working forwards yeah, toward... from my resources. That's really interesting. I'd never thought of that. I think that, that is helpful, actually. Yeah, Because this way. way gets me back to math, and I love formulas. Just give me a formula for how I'm going to run my faith according to a... But now I've really? had to abandon... Oh, it's been the great oh, gosh. tragedy of my life that I have to abandon Are my formulas. Are you a mathematician? <laughs> What's that lovely quote? Um, 
If it's yes. about maths, it's not lovely, oh. but it may be a quote. <laughs> uh, gosh, it was, it was, um, if there's one, uh, if there's, if there's one discipline like science that God d never knows, it's, it's math. And I, uh, but God is a terrible mathematician. Yes, it's, yes, that's exactly the, I've had to abandon all my yeah, formulas I mean, for being a good person and then. Yeah, I mean, you know, which is bigger, one or a hundred? God says one. I mean, yeah. It's just, it doesn't work. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. It has been such a joy. Well, it's been a joy for me. Thank you very much indeed. There's something so lovely that the Archbishop said that I just want to think about for a minute longer. About when his daughter died, and he felt God's love. But then when his son got sick, he felt nothing, but his community carried him through. He said something like, Sometimes you feel the love of God, and sometimes you feel the love of a community, and... If you're very fortunate, you get both. But so often we are deeply lonely and scared that either God or people won't show up. So I thought this might be a nice way to close us into the summer, to bless us when we're scared about having to face the hard things alone. All right, a blessing for you. God, what if... What if I walk out on this ledge and feel only the taste of my fear? What if I discovered that what I carry cannot be shouldered? What if I live too long without that feeling that I can set this, this, this down? God, fill me with a love that staves off all the darkness. Comfort me when I can't think another reasonable thought. And if I can't, I mean, I just can't feel your nearness. Hear you telling me that I'm loved. Send your armies of do-gooders. Tuck my name inside their hearts. Give me people who love to hold more than this day can manage. And if you can't send more than one, because more than one would be nice, just send the nearest person to take things out of my hands and into theirs until I know again today that I should never be expected to walk this road alone. Friends, it has been such a joy to be with you this season. Thank you so much for continuing to listen faithfully and to share your stories with us. Our team reads every single comment and piece of mail and review you send. We just feel so lucky to be part of your days. I also just wanted to say thanks for how much you've been a source of strength and support. Thanks to you, my book, Good Enough, was an instant New York Times bestseller and stayed on that list for like a ridiculous amount of time. And that's just you. I can't imagine a kinder and more loving community to be a part of. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And while this is our last episode of season eight, don't worry, we will absolutely be back in the fall. And in the meantime... I'm going to send out those blessings every Wednesday this summer to your inbox. So visit katebowler.com newsletter.
And I cannot sign off for the season without thanking my absolutely wonderful crew who makes this possible. First to the Lilly Endowment, the Duke Endowment, Duke Divinity School, and Leadership Education for their unwavering support of our medium set work. To Harriet Putman, Gwen Higginbotham, Jesse Broom, JJ Dickinson, Keith Weston, Dave Odom, Catherine Smith, Edgardo Colonna Marique, Jeb and Sammy, thank you. And a special thank you to Ruth and Julianne from the Archbishop's Office for making this possible. And to our extra special on-site producer, Sasha Seinfeld. And really, truly, very deepest, most of all, thank you to Jessica Ritchie. She is the co-author of Good Enough and the champion of my life and the unbelievable producer who makes these conversations absolutely a gift and not just a conversation. So Jess, you make everything better. And thank you so much to our community. Man, we love you. We're going to talk to you again soon. And in the meantime, come find me online. I'm at Kate C. Bowler. This has been Everything Happens with me, Kate Bowler.